Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, we love Burger King grilled dogs. They're made with 100% beef and they're 100%. Mm. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for another eventful week in NBA basketball. We have two guests for you this week. We have Andrew Perna of Real GM to talk about the Pacers-Wizards series, and Marcus Thompson of the Bay Area News Group to talk about the Warriors and the NBA playoffs as a whole. Starting out with Andrew Perna, he writes for Real GM. He has been following the Pacers very closely all year, and I wanted to have him on because the Pacers-Wizards series has been the hardest one for me to figure out. So we go for about 13 minutes on where that series is going, what we've learned about both teams, and potentially you know what it means moving forward. But it was great to have him on. He knows the team very, very well, and so it was fun to really hash that out and walk through it. Thank you so much for coming on. No problem, Dan. Anytime. I've had a little bit of trouble getting a handle on this Pacers-Wizards series, but is it as simple as whatever Pacers team shows up, that's pretty much what dictates the result? It seems to be that that is the case. I mean, it's you know it's hard to get a handle on the series, especially when it's a hard to get a handle on a team. The Patriots have been just just maddeningly, just unbelievably hard to forecast in the playoffs. I mean, over the last month or so of the regular season, you know they played poorly, and you kind of knew that you know they were going to struggle. They turned it on here or there. Um, you know, with where they had a win against Miami, they had a win against Oklahoma City down the stretch. But in the playoffs, it's been um, a case of just really who shows up, just as you said. I mean, you know, they, they looked great for the past three games before last night. Um, you know, they had won five of six of the playoffs overall, winning the last two in, uh, against Atlanta to, you know, avoid the upset and, and early elimination. And then they show up last night in a closeout game at home, you know, with a lot on the line, you know, even with three chances to close the series out, 
Um, if they win last night, they get themselves some rest, assuming not assuming really anything in the Milwaukee, uh, the uh, Miami-Brooklyn series, but, you know, giving themselves some rest and ending in five rather than having to go back to D.C., um, which I think would have been very advantageous given the fact that Paul George said he was, you know, exhausted after game four when, you know, he played the entire second half, scored 39 points, and said he really needed that day off on Monday just to kind of collect his body back together. And, you know, what do they do? They, They just think up the joint. I mean, they lose by 30 points. Milwaukee's out hustling them out, you know, beating them on the board so badly. It was like the second worst, I think, rebounding percentage a team has ever posted um, what the Pacers did. And the differential, I think, was like top three worst all time. And, you know, I mean, of course there are some X's and O's that went into that rebounding differential. But when it's that vast and, you you know, you, it's not like they have a small roster, you know that. Uh, effort is a huge, you know, reason why you lose on the boards that badly. And, you know, Gortat and Nene are, you know, they're good rebounders, maybe, you know, above average rebounders, and they're going to they're gonna hit the glass hard, and the Pacers didn't. And, uh, you know, that was really a huge reason why they lost last night. And, you know, when you look at it, you know, as I said, it, it boils down to effort. And if this team isn't going to come and bring an effort, then they're going to have games like last night, and then you you left you're left wondering okay now who's going to show up the next day is it going to be the team that you know overcame the 19 point deficit on Sunday or is it going to be the team that's kind of going through the motions that we saw last night? And what makes it crazier is that Washington is not particularly consistent either. I think their effort is more consistent, but their execution is very inconsistent, and their offense in particular. So it makes it even crazier because the Wizards have had these really bad stretches as well, which can put even a rough Indiana team into a better position. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, maybe it's I'm not being fair to one team or the other, but, I mean, you can almost expect that a little bit from Washington. You know, we, we in this culture, we kind of give teams that haven't, quote-unquote, haven't been there before an excuse to, you know, have poor execution or uh, an excuse to look like a deer in headlights in the situation. And, you know, Prior to last night, John Wall really played very poorly in the series in the first four games. You know, he was turning the ball over at a high rate, even though I believe he did have five turnovers last night. Um, He wasn't overly aggressive on offense, you know, famously passing up that three-pointer at the end of game four. Um, But last night, he took charge early. Um, You know, he had the huge third quarter where he outscored the Pacers on his own, but he was aggressive really from the opening tip. He got two early layups, and I think seeing the ball go in the basket – really helped him having shot like or something around crazy around like 30 percent through the first four games but you know getting back to that you you expect the Wizards might have a few issues uh you know coming to the moment or putting the right place together and executing what Whitman wants them to do because they haven't really been here before you know uh you have guys with some playoff experience but this unit together is is, is trying to come together and grow together and Guys like Bradley Beal have really, I think, done an outstanding job in the moment. But, you know, you come to expect there's going to be some games where they're crisp, you know, they're passing well, the sets are working, and there's going to be games that they aren't. On the other hand, a team like Indiana, I mean, while they are relatively young in terms of age, when you talk about Paul George and Lance Stevenson, I mean, this team, as everybody knows, was in the Eastern Conference Final last year, was in the semifinals the year before that. They've been in games like this before. They've been in bigger games than that one that played last night. And, you know, it's just it's it's really crazy to think that an effort is, an, is a problem with a team like that. And how do you deal with a problem like effort with these guys that clearly have a lot to play for? 
And is that something that can be resolved with an offseason, or do you think they'll need to make personnel moves to change the, if you want to say the culture, or if you just to change the, the personality of the team? You know, it, when it was the regular season, I thought that maybe either the switch was going to flip in the postseason or it was something that could be addressed in the offseason, um, whether it be Vogel taking a hard-line stance more, whether it meant, you know, exit meetings that included Larry Bird and he's sitting down, you know, reaming into guys and just telling them, yeah, you know, Paul Paul George, you've made these, these jumps every year in terms of the player you are on the court and, you know, you're still young, but you've really got to come and bring a leadership on and off the floor to make your teammates accountable. Um, David West seems to be, you know, the, the only guy that really has that in him, but, you know, he needs somebody else. A lot of people talk about the loss of Brian Shaw is why this is happening. But, you know, as these struggles have gone on and on and on, I really do wonder if personnel changes need to be made. I mean, one would have thought that dealing with the quote-unquote adversity that they did against Atlanta in the first round, they wouldn't really mess around when they came to Washington, you know, a much more talented team. Then you saw them kind of not show up in game one. You show them, you, you see them not show up last night. I mean, in reality, if they need to go to seven games and have their back against the wall every time to wake up, that's going to be a problem because now if, you know, Miami closes it out tonight, LeBron, Wade, and Bosch are going to have, you know, a handful of days off to prepare. They've been expecting Indiana all along. When they get them, they're obviously Spolster is going to be well prepared. They know how to beat the Pacers. So after working off season for this home court advantage, not only have they given it up twice in in their first two series, but they're really not putting themselves in the best position if they do advance. So, you know, it, it's really hard to peg exactly what the problem is, but if it continues to be like this, and at this point, you know, you're halfway through the playoffs, win or lose, it's not fixed yet. Something may have to change personnel-wise, whether they're going to ship guys out or bring, you know, some, some veterans in that have experience and that have a reputation for being a strong voice in the locker room, because, you know, if you have to if you have to tell guys to give effort and energy, you know, midway through May with a championship nine wins away, that's a problem. I think that's a serious problem. Probably something that's, you know, the Internet's joked about it a lot, but Chris Webber even commented on the TNT broadcast last night that Vogel was going into more of a full-court press late in the game just to try to get effort out of guys. If that's true and that's the case, then something something much deeper is happening. Yeah, and that idea of something deeper happening has been something that I've that I've felt. And the the comparison that I've made in my own head, I haven't shared this at all really, other than to a few small people, is it feels a little bit to me like the Cavs locker room did that last, not in terms of seeing it, but just in terms of the way they're playing. The Cavs locker room that last couple games of LeBron's last season there, like there there were some there was something more complicated going on. And in that case, I don't think we ever really heard what it was, but you could see it just in the way that the team played, and I worry that there could be something like that with the Pacers. You know, what's what's, what's strange about that is, you know, I thought, was that the Delonte West? Yes, he was. Okay, when there was, you know, some off-the-court stuff that reportedly may or may not have gone on that caused, like, the fissures in the locker room and stuff like that. And, and you know, you think about, okay, if a team can go from, you know, being like 19-1 and and dominating – and, you know, running away with the first seed in the conference to, you know, fumbling on their feet and basically Miami almost, you know, relenting the top seed late. How can a team go from being that good to that bad so quickly? 
And, you know, you, you know, they didn't have injuries. They didn't – Vogel tried not to change the approach, even though they did, you know, acquire Evan Turner and sign Andrew Bynum. And you say, okay, what could be going on? Is there something going on? And from what I understand, all this stuff that's out there is total BS. You know, there's been some stuff about things that may have happened off the court uh, between players. There was the Evan Turner and Lance Stevenson fight that reportedly, you know, that, that Woj brought um, at midnight after a game that was a huge, another one of his Woj bombs. But report from what I hear, that was overblown. Um, people get annoyed with Lance Stevenson on a weekly basis, and it just so happened this one got out. There's also been some rumors about whether or not women have been involved, and from what I understand, that's not the case. But you have to figure something crazy is going on, right? I mean, this team still has the same starting five. They've been together for three playoff runs now. They know what they need to do to win. They seem to bark at each other and, and give looks and raise hands in frustration when things aren't going well. But when things are going well, they seem like the happiest bunch of guys you've, you've ever seen. So, I mean, while it could definitely be something that nobody knows on the outside about that has really cut the chemistry of this team in half and made them kind of frail when it comes to moments like that, it really just seems like they just aren't mentally tough. They, you know, when things get a little tough, they fold. They expect things to come to them because they were so good early on. I don't know if that really good start really now is coming back to hurt them. I'll let you go on this. The Before the series started, I talked with Jack Winner, and we were talking about how two potential breakout players from this playoffs could be John Wall and Bradley Beal. What have your thoughts been on how they've played so far this series? I, you know, up until last night, I wasn't too impressed with John Wall. I thought George Hill um, and Paul George pretty easily got him out of his comfort zone. And I don't know how much of that really credit deserves to be put on them and how much may have just been a little lack of confidence from John Wall with his shot not falling. You know, Martin Gortat had that amazing soliloquy last night after the game on Wall, you know, basically saying that for the first time he saw him really take the moment last night and he was fully prepared and focused on basketball prior to the game. He didn't want to talk to anybody. And if, you know, he continues to play that the way he did last night in the next few games of this series, you know, maybe the Wizards are going farther than just where they are right now. And that would be impressive for him to take that next step from all-star to superstar, kind of something we saw from Paul George last playoff. In terms of Bradley Beal, I've been very impressed. I mean, his shot is just so fun to watch. He of anyone on the Wizards, aside from maybe Gortat, hasn't looked phased by any moment, hasn't backed down. I know defensively there have been some question marks on him, but I've been very impressed that at his age, what he's been able to bring to the table. And, you know, you look at that backcourt going forward, and, you know, there's a lot of talk about whether people would rather have them or Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, uh, you know, guys you were very familiar with. And, you know, that's definitely a conversation at that at this point. It's just a matter of now what – what happens with the Wizards, you know, let's say Indiana closes without a six or seven. What do they take from this postseason? What do they add this offseason? And what do those two in particular add to their games going into next year? Yeah, it's going to be really fun to watch with the Wizards and also just with the uncertainty in terms of their GM and coach as well, that there's a lot going on there, but they really do have a strong core. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it was good to have you on, and we'll see how the rest of the series plays out. All right, thanks, Danny. Keep in touch. Thanks again to Andrew Perna for coming on. You can read him at Real GM, and you can follow him on Twitter at Andrew Perna. That's A-N-D-R-E-W underscore P-E-R-N-A. 
Next up is Marcus Thompson. He's somebody I've wanted to have on for a while. He's a sports columnist for the Bay Area News Group and one of the people who's been covering the Warriors the entire time that I've been there and much longer than that. Knows the team really well. The funny thing about what happened is that we recorded this at starting at about 2 o'clock Pacific Time on Wednesday and talked a lot about the coach search and talked about the decision to fire Mark Jackson, what they were potentially going to do, and just a matter of hours later, the team hired Steve Kerr, and it was announced David Aldridge broke it on Twitter, and I'll talk about that after, but I wanted to leave the interview largely untouched, and I think it provides a good analysis of what could have happened in that, what is now a counterfactual, because Kerr took the job. But Marcus and I talk for an hour, we go on, start on the Warriors, and then we get into the larger playoff picture, and then we go back to the Warriors, and a fair warning for Warriors fans, at about the 40 minute mark of the interview, you're going to want to stress ball, because we get into a topic that I really haven't heard much frank discussion on in regards to Steph Curry, and it was really fun to talk about that with Marcus, and while we've talked for years, and we've known each other for years, it was something that he and I have actually never discussed, and it was very interesting to see how that played out and how our thinking went on that. So we go, as I said, we go into the Warriors, go out of the Warriors, and then go back into it. Conversation runs an hour. It was an absolute blast having him on. I was happy that it worked out. I've been trying to have him on for a little while, and it fallen through on one end or the other, but it was a great conversation. Well, thanks so much for coming on. No problem. I feel honored. So it seems like even though it happened a little while ago, the place to start is with the last remnants of the Mark Jackson tenure. And I think we've gone through pretty well what happened in terms of going out. But my question to you is, if knowing what you know, would you have made the same decision that the front office did? Uh, that's a tough one. Probably not. I would say... I would rather have developed the areas Mark Jackson was weak than to start over. I don't know if we can get to that point, but that's that's what I felt like could have been done. Well, and that also yeah. that builds on the it's, idea that it's a, it's that a he... tough call. I mean, I could see I could see why they let him go. I see it. You know, a lot of it makes sense. Some of it was preventable, but I, I just don't think you can lose the context of this franchise and of the rarity of what happened and the frequency of, you know, instability in the franchise. I don't think starting over and getting a new guy and bringing in a new system, it just, I just don't think this fan base wants that. And I think, you know, doing, even though you had some valid reasons, I think stability was more important than whatever reasons they had. Yeah, and that brings up an interesting point because the transition is going to be very difficult. And while there, there, I, there's this very small group of coaches that I think would definitely be better, you're not only adjusting to a new system, but there are a lot of personalities in place. And the Warriors, the players that are on this team, are going to be on the team next year. There's not going to be much turnover in all likelihood. So that raises different challenges because instead of kind of keeping the status quo and building on it, they might have to be doing something totally new. And if it doesn't work to start, how, how does that work? You know, what, what happens when players, when the system is different and it's not working, how do they feel about the coach? I mean, we kind of saw this in Memphis. You know, they struggled. They were 7-7. Seven to seven. And it was before Gasol went out. And, and, and Conley had to go to the coach. And, and from what I read, veterans went to the coach and was like, hey, we got we to gotta do some things a little differently. Do, you know, is that how it works with the Warriors or is it, 
Steven Jackson, you know, going bad on <laughs> going bad on a coach and, and, and making you know, working out his long term extension with the president, you know. We've seen this go bad with the Warriors. Can it go can it go well? Of course it can. But my thing is you had something clicking and that wasn't a concern and now it's a concern. And I don't know what happens when this team starts off ten and ten to start next season, if if that happens, you know, or what happens when now all of a sudden, you know, the big men are getting no touches and they're all they're only screen setters and it's all about shooting threes and how do they feel about that, you know? So it's it's all that kind of stuff that you worry that that while today it seems like nothing, you know, in the locker room when when you got a little three game losing streak, it starts to matter that much more. Yeah, and when you're talking about talking about how it feels, the other thing that's interesting is that this Warriors ownership has never been one to really lower expectations. It seems like whenever given the opportunity, they were about you know, having high expectations and raising it up, whether that be Mark Jackson's first year when they were doing the season ticket holder promise that they were going to make the playoffs, or, you know, maybe their issue, part of their issue with Jackson is they thought this was a championship team. And so when you're playing in a stacked Western Conference, as you said, what happens if they start out the season 10 and 10? The reality is they could not make the playoffs and still have gotten become a better team. I mean, that's just the West. Dallas is a better team than they were last year. No question. They could have missed the playoffs. <laughs> you know, Phoenix is a really good team. They could have missed the playoffs. So that's the reality in the West. So if you take into consideration that there's a chance it might be a slow start, you know, there's a chance that, you know, there's got to be an adjustment level with the new coach and the new players and a new system. You know, you put, take that on into consideration, how many how many games does that cost you? You know, and if you if you get to the – 48 to 52 win window. Well, we've shown that that's that's not a guarantee. So if you're on that 48 side, you know that might be natural expectation after you change the whole system and the whole coach staff and the whole organization. That's not going to be based on the already been said. It's just a very risky move, uh, and I, I just don't think you do that unless you you got your guy. And from the looks of it, they don't have their guy. Well, yeah, and that to me is the most interesting part of it. And I'm thinking back to to the, I don't even know if you can call it a press conference. I think it was more press availability that Bob Myers did right after they fired Jackson. And they were talking about how, you know, it was going to be an open search and they were going to be looking. And the piece that I wrote right after they, like when they were considering it is, yeah, maybe you fire him, but you only fire him if you have somebody pretty much lined up. And, you know, if you can do that, because there's a big downside risk. And what's interesting about it is it kind of seems like they, they might have had preliminary conversations with people, but that they didn't have anything even close to firm. They just were ready for a search as opposed to what they already had. I mean, you can tell, you know, they had talked to Kerr and they talked to Van Gundy. I mean, that that was obvious. But clearly they didn't get a committal. And maybe that's why they just went ahead and fired Mark Jackson when they did so they could kind of jump into that, knowing those guys were available. I don't know, but if they lose out on Van Gundy and Kerr, now you now you already publicly you're at number three. What if number three does you know, if it's Hoyberg and, and he doesn't want and he doesn't leave. Now you're number four. But number four, you know, you can be down to five or six. You gave up your coach for like the sixth guy on your list. That's not gonna play well. You almost have to go out and win big just to justify it. 
I mean, we've seen this before. You know, they 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 won in the playoffs, won 48 games the next year, and then dismantled it. It's like this is what the Warriors do. So it's hard not to think that this is what happened in the team. Yeah, and you get into that issue of, you know, having high hopes, but the other challenge that's going on with this, and we're going to see this as you were talking about if we get into three and four and five, is that a lot of the guys in that next mix, I would assume Kevin Ollie is in that mix. I would assume that if he were available, Tom Thibodeau would be in that mix. But those guys have jobs, and that's a very different thing to take somebody from a place that they certainly appear to be happy and get them versus getting somebody like Stan Van Gundy or even a George Carl who they're not in the same situation. They're not, they don't have the leverage of a position that they're happy with. And this is all on the heels of a coach going out where 51 wins and a gutsy playoff performer wasn't enough. So if you're looking, if you're Kevin Alley, right, and, and you're the star now, you got a great, you're working on a contract extension, you, you can do no wrong, they love you, do you want to go work under a place where 51 wins in the West wasn't enough? I mean, they don't know the particulars in the situation. They don't know all the backdoor details. But from the outside, and you can tell by the national reaction to Mark Jackson firing, it looks crazy. 51 wins, back-to-back playoffs, push the Clippers to seven without your starting center. If you're a Hoiberg and you're looking like, man, I got a good situation, do I want to go there? That's different than taking a team that is bad and making them good. That's taking a team from good to great under circumstances where clearly really good ain't enough. You know, for me, that if you're looking outside in, that makes you say, man, you either got to jump my money or you like Stan Van Gundy, man, I need some control. Because if you oust the coach on 51 wins and the playoff showing that they had, how do you feel comfortable? What's next? If you're coming in, what do you have to do for them to say, yeah, great job? And even if it's not next year, what does year three need to be? Do you have a three-year window to win a championship? Is that the stakes? For Kevin Ollie, do you walk into that? Like, all right, you got three years to win a title, buddy. I don't know. I might stay put. Or you got to be paying me a handsome penny to go under that pressure. The other factor in that is that this Warriors team doesn't have a ton of flexibility to get better. So you're not in one of those situations where you're saying, oh, you know, the team was pretty good, they have potential, and they have a top draft pick or they have cap space or something like that. So you're basically asking them to do better than Mark Jackson did with essentially the same roster. The guys are generally younger, so they might be getting better in that sense. But you're not getting a talent infusion, and that makes it even scarier. 51 wins isn't enough. And it's not like you're adding uh, Joel Embiid or Andrew Wiggins or a Carmelo Anthony. You're just basically taking the same team unless Bob Myers works some magic in the offseason. And, you know, while Clay may get better, maybe Curry gets better, Barnes, Green, you may, you need to start talking about maybe some guys getting worse, you know. Is, is David Lee going to get any better or is he start his decline? You know, what, does Andrew Bogut start his decline? I mean, you're talking about guys on them. Uh, looks like Andre Iguodala declines. We saw playoffs in Denver. Was that him just struggling to get, you know, acclimated, or is is is, is he, you know, on that more descent from a, from a good career? So you got to factor that in too. Even if you got these guys and you're like, all right, I got this, at the peak of their career, can you say that about all of the OGs they have on the roster? <laughs> you know, are you going to get another year from Jermaine O'Neal like that again? I don't know. Just like you can't bank on 
players growing, you can't bank on, you know, the veterans being the same, especially once you get into that 30 range. Absolutely. So staying on more the player side of it, are there any guys, given the fact that the Warriors probably aren't going to have a ton of flexibility, are there any guys that you think of as being good fits or guys on the Warriors that you would think of moving? I mean, there's no way to get around moving David Lee, right? I mean, and and that means Barnes got to go with him because that's the for me that's the only way that a team takes David Lee. There are some teams out there that I think will take David Lee. I mean, the real question is, you got you got five guys who are going to be making double digit money once Clay gets his extension. I mean, you just can't. That's just not feasible. Not, you're not going to win a championship with those five guys making all the money. So, I mean, if you pick one that's a move, it's got to be the the elephant in the room, which is the $15 million salary that's at the top of the list. Next is Bogut. I don't think they move Bogut just because, you know, they waited forever to get a legitimate center. And when healthy, you know, he's pretty good. So who who do you move? I mean, it's got to be – I mean, that's the elephant in the room. So you got to get a guy, a team to take him. Will, Will Orlando take him? You know, a team that's with Detroit take him now. You know, if you could work out any kind of deal to get somehow get Monroe on your roster and get Lee off your roster, you you work. <laughs> that's a, that's a miracle. The the really sad thing to me is, in some ways, is that we're talking about Harrison Barnes potentially being a sweetener in a David Lee trade, and that's pretty remarkable considering where his stock was 12 months ago. I mean, he was supposed to be the next, right? <laughs> He was supposed to be. Remember, remember the debates about who would you rather trade, Clay or Harrison Barnes? Remember that? I think you were saying uh, Barnes too at the time. Remember how that was like the hot topic, and now it's like a no-brainer. Uh, yeah. Well, and I remember oh. you. The the other thing that with that is it's the Clay and Draymond now. It's you know Harrison's the third wheel of those young perimeter guys. Yeah, now it's Clay. Well, you got to keep Draymond. He's making eight hundred thousand. <laughs> You keep him just for value, but I don't know. Do you write off Barnes that easy? I just don't see how this team gets better. I mean, what else do you do? You either roll out there with this team again, which has holes, and maybe you think a new coach can cover those holes. Otherwise, the only way you get better is to start working with some of the core pieces that were once untouchable. Otherwise, I mean, I think they're stuck. They're trapped until some contracts start coming off the books in a couple years. But for me, you got Lee is like the elephant in the room because he's making fifteen million and if they're really trying to get advanced with the offense, I don't know how you do that with, you know, a four and a five who have to be near the bucket. So you gotta move one of them. <laughs> and Lee for me is the obvious one. And who's taking Lee unless you throw in a sweetener? I mean it would be nice if like Jordan Crawford was that sweetener, but in the end all you got is Barnes. That's it. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think there's any real serious consideration of trading somebody like Clay because I think they're generally happy with him. And while there could be bold moves there, but then you get into the really the other elephant in the room, which is that while it's still three years, you know, Steph Curry is only locked up to the team for three years. And so you need to do something to show him in that time frame that there's a reason to stay. And while yeah. I'm not worried about him forcing his way out now, if you're making a move to, let's say, to win now, let's say you're doing something like that, and then two years from now you're sitting there and you're you're seeing a team that's aging really fast, if Bogut and Iguodala are still there, you know, they're going to be coming off the books, but they're also going to be 
coming off probably towards the end of their time as key starters on a team. So the Warriors need to be thinking now about how can we make sure that this team is going to be good enough that Steph won't even think about going anywhere else. See, that's I think that's one of these 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 footnotes in the Mark Jackson firing that I think people they, that people miss on, and I think Warriors management may have missed on it. If you think about this, and you're Steph Curry, think of all the stuff Steph thinks Steph Curry has gone through since he's been a Warrior. And he's been a model player. He's done everything that has. He stays out of trouble. You know, he gets better on the court. He produces. He's had to deal with, you know, Monte not wanting to play with him, to ankle injuries, to losing, to AC Law playing over him, to getting the ball taken out of his hands with Jack and Monte. And then he finally get. oh, I'm sorry, to taking a, to giving him an $11 million a year contract extension which worked out to be a huge discount and then and then after all that you take away his coach <laughs> you mean to tell me if you're if you're Steph Curry you're not thinking about they not really feeling me like I think they should be feeling me I'm already giving you a discount I've already endured your three coaches and your bad coaches and Nelly not really coaching and Monte and all this and that and you didn't even and they didn't even at least make sure Steph Curry understood why they were firing him. The day before Mark Jackson gets fired, Steph Curry is out here saying, I want my coach. I love him. I, I, I got to tell him. I, they're going to hear from me about it. And then the next day he's fired. You know, what, what sounded to me like you don't even pull him aside and say, look, I mean, we need you on board with this. You're our future. We want you in. And the make, you know, that, that don't seem like it happened. So if you're Steph Curry right now, playing on a discount, prospects of losing again, and they fired the one thing you really liked about being here, you've got to start thinking about whether this guy's going to leave. That's got to be a real conversation. And it doesn't happen when he gets to his, his expiring, you know, the last year of his deal. That's the wrong time to start thinking about it. You, you know, that, that's why Dan Gilbert was so mad, because they pumped all this stuff into trying to keep LeBron for years, and then he bolts. You got to start preparing for that now. And right now, I'm telling you, I don't think Steph Curry is is 100% guaranteed to stay. I I just don't. I think something has to happen. And if this coach thing doesn't work and he's back where he was with Keith Smart and Don Nelson and you know and Monte, if he's back there again, you better believe you. He's going to at least consider Bolton. I think that's the under the undercurrent of it all because he put himself out there and he normally doesn't do that. He put himself out there like, this is my guy. I want to keep him. And then the next day he's fired. <laughs> if, that, if, that, if that's how you treat your star, you can't expect him to at least want to stay. Exactly. And and that's the, the sad part of it is that Steph has been such a team player and he's been such a, a model citizen, if you want to say that. He's a very soft-spoken guy. I think you and I both like him quite a bit on a personal level. And it was fascinating to see him stick his neck out there in that sense when I think a lot of us had the expectation that Jackson was going to be gone and just to see it go in that direction was really, really interesting. And you talk about the idea of, you know, him, the things of him not being happy. And the other part of it is, you know, if there is a reason for him to stick around, if the team is going to be really good, but the other challenge with the Warriors is that they have all these guys that are going to be expiring at the same time. So he's going to have to be really sold in a different way 
to want to stay because Bogut's coming off the books at the same time as him. Iguodala's coming off the books. So you're basically going to be saying, okay, if Barnes is still there, you got Barnes, Draymond, presumably, assuming they resign him and Clay, and saying, okay, is this a good enough team for you to choose that over any option? Because we know everybody and their mother is going to want Stephen Curry when he's an unrestricted free agent. Good question. So we'll move on to the to the rest of the playoffs. Now that now that the Warriors are out of it, both of us have been freed up a little bit to watch everything. What are your takeaways from this second round of the playoffs? The Clippers are very disappointing. Uh, I really I really think they have the best team in the West. I think, or how about this? They have the most talent. I think Antonio has the best team, but they have the most talent. They, to me, they've proven that they are better. They're better than the Thunder. I just thought Doc was six there choking, you know, and they they really got a propensity to choke. It's 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 almost so because you look, they got Blake, Chris Paul, the bench is you know, pretty good. They got the tough guy, the gym protector. They got all these little pieces. Man, this is, and yet they're down three two off like silly stuff, <laughs> you know. Fouling a three-point shooter and Chris Paul losing his mind. I don't know what he's doing. Turning over twice. Like you, I feel like they should be. We should be waiting for the showdown with the Spurs. For me, that's how I feel. We should be waiting for the showdown with the Spurs and the Clippers are just. They're struggling to find their footing. You know, they're they're the Indiana Patriots of the West to me. They're just. It's just disappointing. I thought Doc would fix it, but clearly he hasn't yet. The thing I, I wrote a I wrote a few tweets about this yesterday. The thing that's really struck me with them is that they clearly have no answers at small forward. Jared Dudley's a big bust. Matt Barnes has his moments, but he's inconsistent. That we really have not seen Reddick and Crawford together on the idea of basically saying, okay, our small forward position is just screwed up. Let's just go with our two best perimeter players, and yeah, we're probably going to get murdered on defense, but maybe we can score more points, and maybe we can just make their lives hell. And it's disappointing to me that we haven't even seen that just when nothing else has worked. And the, the crazy, crazy part about it is, you know, when when they really played their best, when they went with Collison, Paul, Crawford. So we've seen the three-guard lineup work for them. I mean, when else can you do it but when you have a shot blocker, defensive specialist in the middle like Jordan? I mean, is there ever a better time to take the L on defense when you got – you know, somebody who can cover up a few mistakes. I wouldn't even – I mean, Barnes has his role and he does it well, but at some point, Reddick on one side, Crawford on the other, and at least let CP go to work. I mean, at least let Blake go to work. It, 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 Doc is, is having a little Mark Jackson, you know, I feel like, and his, you know, kind of refusal to get away. Like, he's so concerned with defense that he won't go with the best lineup because he really cares about defense. It's just, it seems like he's, you know, the answer is right there and he just won't tap it. For me, I don't know if Big Baby would ever play. <laughs> yeah. Certainly, Granger would get limited minutes as, as as a stretch four only. But he's running out like almost a second unit like Mark, Mark Jackson. You know, I, I wouldn't do it. I don't know. I, I would run, you got Crawford, Collison, and, and Granger. And if, if DeAndre Jordan's not in the game, I'm going small. And I think they got more horses than the Oklahoma. I just think they got – I mean, Oklahoma has Durant and Westbrook, obviously. 
and Ibaka can't, can't hurt you. But if Reggie Jackson beats him, then Reggie Jackson has to beat me. But I'm I'm, I'm rolling with Crawford and Reddick, and, you know, and, and this lineup that will be difficult to guard with the floor spread. It's just weird that he won't get away from his traditional lineup. And and that brings me back to I asked Jackson a question in the post game I can't remember which game it was and he didn't really follow it but the core idea of it was basically I was wondering why Jackson was sitting Curry so much when Darren Collison was in and the undercurrent of that which I didn't say outright is you should do that because Doc isn't going to change what he's doing and you have an opportunity to take advantage of that and what's funny is that Scott Brooks isn't doing it either Scott Brooks is like okay I'm just going to keep playing Kendrick Perkins instead of realizing that you can do something with that and it's so weird to see these really talented teams with coaches that are so set in their ways. It's, it, it drives me crazy. Like, especially when Curry is getting hounded so much by Chris Paul. I'm like, man, look, I'm starting him the second quarter every time and let him go against Collison. Let him go against Crawford. Just because it's a break from having to deal with Chris Paul. I don't get how they don't see that. It's like everybody's so set in their ways that they won't even see the other guy. The other guy is showing you his hand and you just won't you won't look at it, you know. Perkins would probably never play for me. <laughs> yeah. I don't and, know. And the other mean, thing with with Paul we was that in that series they weren't making him work as hard on defense. Obviously Curry's a tough cover, but they weren't killing him with screens nearly enough, you know, just basically just making Chris Paul wear out because they don't have that many guys on their offense that can create for other people. I think Jamal is amazing at creating for himself, and Blake has gotten a lot better. But if you can basically make Chris Paul a much less a much less active player, and with his injuries, which amazingly he's getting better, it just felt like they were letting so many opportunities just sit there and just pounding Chris Paul when they had the chance. And they would run that one, they would move Curry off the ball, and they would run that one play, and he would run baseline off one screen. And the Clippers knew what was coming. They would have, you know, the the weak side guy kind of jump out, you know, to protect the pass and give Paul time to recover. And then that's it. Like, once Dallas saw that it was covered, that was it. And Curry was just standing in the corner. I'm like, uh-uh, he would have to run off three, four screens. We're going to spend 20 seconds running him off screens. <laughs> and then if Curry gets the ball with 20, with 20, with four seconds left on the shot clock, make something happen out of it. They did it one time, and then they walked away from it. So you, Chris Paul, you already know in your head, I just need to give you one good burst, and then I can sit in the corner. And psychologically, that, that, that's easy for Chris Paul. Now, if you like, I got to go through 30 of these things, after a while, you're going to start saying switch. And, and he didn't have, they never made him say switch. The only time he called for switch was when he was hurt, and I think game four, and he was clearly laboring, and he would say switch. Other than that, Paul was like, I'm going to get through this because it's only one, and then that's it. They're going to go somewhere else. Yeah, it's amazing how this playoff run has really made me appreciate the great coaches in the league, the Popoviches, if you want to put Spolster in that group, because so many other teams are just disintegrating. Are you seeing that? I mean, the Pacers, I don't know what their problem is, but Vogel certainly doesn't appear like he's helping it because he's not keeping it afloat. I don't know. I don't know what their problem is, but it's crazy to think about what the Pacers are doing now, too. You know, one of the things I think, and just just from covering multiple coaches, I think coaches stick to their. They, they believe in sticking to their system. You know, that's part of their confidence. Is my system works. Stick to the system. But the good coaches, they have so many variables in that system. For Mark Jackson to go and say, "All right, Curry, we're going to now run you off eight screens." 
would be like an addendum to the system. Instead of instead of like a guy like Popovich, he's got that seventh step already into the system. So it's not a shock. It's not anything new when they say, all right, we're going to go to option G. And I think that's what you see the difference is between the great ones and the good ones. That that fourth and fifth option is already a part of the system, whereas the coaches who aren't so good, they got two or three options, and if it doesn't work, that's because you're not running it right. And I think Mark Jackson didn't have that fifth option, that sixth option. Here's what we do when they cover this. And it was always about we're not doing it right. We need to do it better instead of saying, all right, all right you got that? All right, I got this for you. And always having that factored into the system. Nelly had that. He was ready. He had you know, he had your chessboard ready. He knew when you made this move, I got this one. And he was great at that, but it was something that was already a part of what they were what they were doing. And so I feel like Mark Jackson felt like to do anything different would be a drastic change from the system that they spent all year on. And I think that's why he couldn't do it. Do you think that it was all that another factor in that was that we talked about Popovich. Popovich basically has permanent job security, but that Jackson knew that if you know if things didn't go didn't go well, then he was going to be gone, and things went well, and he's still gone. And so the urgency to only have A if you think that A is your best chance to win, as opposed to Popovich, who has the flexibility to develop A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, and do that, and also have the confidence that I don't need to play my starters 35, 38 minutes a night. That all will be fine. And that could some of that be explained by job security? Absolutely. I think 1,000%. We watched it. We keep smart, as a matter of fact. And and he was benching Curry, and Curry was turning the ball over, and he was sitting him down and play AC Law. Now, Keith Smart knew that Curry was a better player, but he was coaching for his job, and every win mattered to him. So he went with what would get him to win. I think also that played into the fact was this whole talk of Mark Jackson not being an XO guy, I think that made him stick to his stuff even more to say, I'll show you we're going to win with the system that I put in. And even though you guys are saying I can't coach and I don't have strategy and I'm just a motivator, I think he went on on the whole I'm going to show you approach, especially when you find out that they started recommending assistant coaches in the off season and he wanted to keep his guys. In essence, they were telling him, yeah, man, you need some help. And he's like, I need help. I'm good. I'm going to show you. And I think if they if they had somehow pulled out that Clipper series, that that would have been the ultimate proof for him. Like, I told you uh, that I got this. And I think that's – I think he was more – I think he was really bent on saying, I got this. You guys say I'm just a motivator, but I'll show you that, we, that we're better than that, that, that I know what I'm doing. And I don't, I don't think – I think that dialogue of he's not an X and O guy and a Mike Malone, I think that made him even more stubborn because any adjustment he made, he then would not get credit for it. It will be because they recommended an assistant coach or because so-and-so on the bench came up with it. Whatever change he made, he wanted it to be known that he did it, and I think it was because he got so defensive because his intelligence was being attacked. We saw that play out with the Hilton Armstrong when he was like, hey, Y'all think Hilton Armstrong really came up with that play? I put that play in, and he didn't even want that. And I think that was part of it. This whole Michael Malone is an X and O guy, and we don't have anybody. Yeah, and there, and I also think that 
that provides a little bit of color for the things that Jackson was saying, you know, as the series was coming to a close and as the series ended, you know, the idea of, you know, we didn't get all the way there, but look at all the things that were in our way. And it was funny because at the time I was kind of making jokes in my head about how it was funny that he went from being the no excuses guy to basically rattling off a ton of excuses when it looked like he was going to lose his job. But at the same point, he was also defending his rationale. His idea was, you know, this basically this would have worked if we would have had the right chance. And the crazy part about it is, while I think he could have done a better job, I also think to a point he was right that, you know, what he had put together would have done probably would have been given them a pretty good chance against the Clippers, though. Obviously, the Clippers got saddled with one of the craziest sideshows that the NBA has ever seen. But it's this really weird thing because he never really got a fair chance, if you want to say it that way, to test out what he had been sticking behind the whole time. And, you know, one of the things, you know, Mark Jackson's one of his big key, you know, points in his favor is that, you know, he had a great locker room. And it was what he it was what he banked on. It was what he hung his hat on that his guys played for him. You talked about, you know, flexibility. What happens if he benches David Lee? And I, I've talked about, I've talked to him about this lots of times. What happens if he sits David Lee? David Lee has a problem with it that he's gotten demoted. And now two of the, one of the people who were key in kind of creating that chemistry now doesn't like the coach. Does, does he have that, does he have the leeway to have an issue on the one thing he hangs his hat on? You know, that, that that little fear was there, too. If you sit David Lee and now you lose David Lee, now what happened? Now, now the one thing that you were known for is now a problem. So in many ways, his hands was kind of tied. I think he knew that if he sat David Lee and brought him off the bench, I think he knew he would lose David Lee. I think he knew that. And I, I think he thought that was too big of a risk, even though he might have even agreed. With it. I don't think he agreed with it, but he might have even considered it. But all that stuff factors in, too, whereas, you know, Popovich say, look, you know what, Tim, I'm just not going to start you right now. I'm going to start stretch four. And <laughs> Tim might even be like, all right, coach. <laughs> but they leave right now the chemistry builder. You know, him and Curry were two chemistry builders. What happens then? You know, what happens to Mark Jackson's one, you know, plus in his favor if that becomes a negative? All that little That's- stuff to be fair to play the factor. That's an excellent point, and there are two others that factor in there. One is what happens if things get worse, because as we've talked about, this was a very results-oriented situation. And then the other one is how do you do that if the player that you're considering benching is more popular with your owner than you are? Oh, you know, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's another big factor is, you know, if, if, if you're the owner's guy and it works, then, yeah, obviously you get some give. But if it doesn't work, maybe because your center gets hurt – then how how do you deal with that, and how do you justify that to your ownership, who seems to really like this really good this player who is your other all star? I mean that that that's been elephant in the room for you know a couple of years that you know Lakeup loves David Lee, and you know David Lee brings a set of issues along with his strengths. You know, I mean that's if if he made his mid range jumper this year, that would have been so much better. But even that wasn't working so it, it was just a tough spot and that's why i say this it, it was more about personality than anything because a lot of the stuff that we're talking about for me it's fixable if grown people sit down and talk it's fixable but it just became a big clash of personality so now you can't have that conversation 
you know, hey, are you going to be with me if this guy goes into the tank because I brought him off the bench? <laughs> you know, like what <laughs> – if you can't have that conversation, I bet you, I bet you, Pop and RC Buford have that, have that conversation. You know, I bet, I bet Pop can say, "Look, here's what I'm gonna do," and if they have an issue, they can sit there and work it out. I just feel like because of the personalities in the room, they just couldn't work that out. Which five years, ten years from now, it's gonna sound when they do the thirty for thirty documentary, it's gonna sound like high school. He say, she say, and it's like, really? That's why it ended. You know, and if they don't win after this, if they go in the tank, and this becomes like we believe too, like this mystical, legendary run the Warriors made that really was only a second round run, kind of like a run TMC, then we're gonna let that end it because the personality. It just seems like it was also physical to me. Yeah, and the other the other thing when you're thinking about it in terms of the difference between what the Spurs do, and you could say this with the Heat as well, is that the leverage to say we're going to do well with or without you. So basically the my way or the highway type thing, you can't necessarily do that when you're a franchise and a team that hasn't had sustained success. You know, you you don't have the leverage on the player to say, hey, look, this is the way we've done it. We've had success. We've moved guys in and out, whether it be injury or ineffectiveness. And wow, we're, we're happy with you. If you're not, if you're not down with that, then bye. They didn't have the leverage to do that and the uh, credibility to do that with David Lee, which could have, which would have tied his hands in terms of acting out, but they didn't have the leverage to do that. And, you know, I think they liked him too. They, they didn't want to do that. <laughs> I mean, I think, I, I think it wasn't until recently that ownership was saying, yeah, we kind of see what everybody's saying. You know, I think for a while they said, yeah, we know he's not that great of a defender, but, you know, he does this and he does this and he's great at this, you know, which is true. But I think it wasn't until recently where you can see how that impacts the overall scheme of things. The odd part is, you know, they want to they want a stat guy. They want an advanced stat guy. They want offensive motion and floor spreading and passing. But you just can't do that with two guys who need to be in the paint. So it's like how do you how do you love David Lee when he's really best as a center? And you have Andrew Bogey, but yet you want to be this free-moving, wide-open offense. You know, how do you not want, like, somebody else who can stretch the floor and who can, you know, finish at the rim, you know? It, it, it was just, it's just an odd thing to say, yeah, we love this, this is our guy, we love him, and they believe for me is a good player. But for what they want, what they want from Mark Jackson, he doesn't, he doesn't fit back. You know, what they want from this next coach, what are you going to do when – you got Lee and Bogan in the paint, and you you know the only two shooters you really have on the team like that you can rely on is Curry and Clay, and everybody else needs to be at the rim somewhere. And that ties in with something. I'm somebody who was a very uh, very prominent critic of David Lee, and what I feel bad about, and I've written about this a little bit over the years, is that a lot of that isn't you know it's not like he's a bad guy or anything. It's that they put him in the wrong situation, you know. Yeah. That the fact that they've decided to build a team where even though they have two wonderful defenders now in Iguodala and Bogut, that if you have Steph Curry, who at his best is an average defender, you probably don't want another key member of your team to be a bad defender because it just makes it too hard on everybody else. And if you want to talk about that they wanted to get into advanced metrics, they wanted to get into all this stuff, they made it a lot harder on themselves in that standpoint and that they weren't willing to even if he's still starting, play him with the second unit just to see how it works. Because what I felt bad about with David Lee is that, you know, as you mentioned, he's a good player. It's just that they didn't 
put him in the situation to maximize him. And it felt like to me that it was like, I'm just having to sit there and harp on it because they're not, they're not giving the positive. They're only do, putting him in situations to accentuate the negative. I think that worked against them too. Like when you see David Lee going against, you know, some of the better power forwards in the league, you can almost see that he knows he's up against it. Like, I think if David Lee had a different mindset, I think he'd be even better than what he is. I think some of the guys that he has a hard time against, they can't guard him either. Yet he doesn't go into it thinking that. You know, one thing I love about Russell Westbrook, he'll give up 40. But his thing is, all right, I'm going to hit you for 41. And I don't think David Lee has it. I think the fact that he knows that he's up against it, impact his offense like he used to go at Blake Griffin in the playoffs I mean you can't score on Blake Griffin <laughs> you know it's, it's that I think that gets to his confidence and then you got people questioning whether he could you know whether he whether he should be starting I think all that stuff factors in you know so and, and in one sense I think that's why Mark Jackson didn't bring him off the bench or didn't even entertain it because he knows I, mean, I need this guy to feel like He's the best in the world. For me, if David Lee approached the game like, all right, I may not be able to guard you, but you can't guard me, and just went at his opponent, I think he'd be so much better. But he gets into that, oh, I better hurry up and get it up quick because I'm going to get my shot blocked instead of saying, all right, I got you. I'm going to hit you with a pump fake. I'm going to do something, but I'm going to get mine. And whenever he gets that, and usually they got to start talking trash to him. Like if you notice him in the playoffs against the Clippers, there was a certain point where he just got upset at, at Blake, and then he started playing. And it was like, all right, I'm no longer, you know, worried about how I, how I look or if I'm losing the matchup. I'm just going to take this dude because he's getting on my nerves. He needs that edge in order to make all of it worthwhile. He needs to go out and be, you know, the regular 2010 guy who has an average 2010 in the last two years or three years. He needs to be a 20 guy, 20, 25 guy every night to kind of justify it. And he just wasn't doing it. And when he's not doing it, like, it hurt, it hurts Steph Curry. You think if you're watching Curry play and watching the way he gets double teamed and the way he gets trapped, think how much he would want another guy to draw a double team on his team. Like, can I just get one other dude to draw a double team, please? But, every, you know, who else do you – who else puts fear in another defense? You know, if David Lee was that guy, it would be so much better. But if he's not killing on offense, then you then, then it becomes very obvious his limitations. And for some reason, they just I don't know. Maybe it was his mid range jumper was gone. They just couldn't seem to maximize him offensively. And the, the point that you brought up there that's really interesting, also about Steph and the double teams, is that. Steph is a good enough player that he's going to have the chance to play international basketball. And so he's going to get the experience just like Kevin Love has, and I think is going to lead to him leaving Minnesota, where he's going to learn, okay, I can play with these guys. I have played with them. These guys are a lot of fun. And I think that you're going to see somebody in that group, like somebody in that group try to basically pull a couple of strings with him to say, come on, I, we would have a lot of fun playing together. And, the Warriors should be terrified that that's going to happen, you know, whether it be – it'll happen before the 2016 Olympics, but it'll happen at some point that he's going to sit there and, I mean, they have to pray that it's not LeBron because that's a guy who I think it's Steph over. would love to play with. Yes, it's and over. so he's a collaborative guy. He's a guy who wants to win. So all that it's going to take is somebody doing that, and that's the other reason why the Warriors need to be on it in terms of 
getting the right guys around him because if you if you create a situation where he's happy playing with the guys he's playing with, that's great. But you're going to have to get it so that when Kevin Durant is calling wherever Kevin Durant is, because he'll be a free agent before that, to say, hey, like we might have space, you know, whether that be Oklahoma City or whether that be that Kevin goes somewhere else. Somebody's going to have the space for two guys, and the Warriors have to understand that that second guy, that first guy, is going to want Steph as the second. And if if they if they can go to if he can go to a place where he's the number two guy, I think he even knows that that's great for him. You know, especially after being the number one with no real number two. You know, more like a bunch of threes, number three guys. I think if a number one guy comes and says, Steph, I need you to be my number two, I think at that point especially, if things continue the way they are, he'd say, man, it would be a relief to be a number two guy. You know, the the freedom to to be able to play, you know, and and have somebody else take the attention away. I think he he would relish that. I think that's why people worried about him going to Charlotte. I don't think he would go to Charlotte. Number one, I think he wants to be in a big market, and I, I don't, I think, the business aspect of Stephen Curry is underrated. I think he he knows Charlotte is too small for him, and plus it's probably too much of a distraction. But Charlotte, he'd go and he'd be number one. And when I asked him about it a, lot, a long time ago, you know, the intimation was, I'm not going to go to a place that's not better than here. You know, <laughs> it's going to be a step up. But if, if LeBron comes calling, you know, if Kevin Durant comes calling, can you just imagine how that sounds? Clay Thompson is probably the second best player he's got now. Going to play with LeBron, you know, and you know they're going to come calling too. Especially, here's the other part too. He's making 11. 16, 15 sounds great when you're making 11. It's not like Steph Curry has to make max money. He's not even close to max right now. So you may not even have to give him max. You may just say, hey, I give you, you know, we give you David Lee deal. And that's going to sound great, you know, just because it's so much more than what he, what he will have been making the last three years. There, there's a lot of signs pointing to why Steph Curry will be on his way out. And I think if they're not paying attention, woo, it's going it's to hit like a brick. You're going to get some and, comic sans. And the other part of that is also the only downside for the worries of Steph being such a good guy and not having that ego is that he's somebody who, from what all my experience with him, who would be willing to be the second best player in a championship team. He doesn't have oh, yeah. that. I need. He doesn't have that Kobe. I need to prove it without Shaq mentality. He just wants to win. And maybe if he won, you know, three titles, that would change. But right now, he would take being the number two on a title team versus being the number one who gets doubled all the time on a team that's fighting for the eighth seed in the West, you know, wherever that is, I think that would intrigue him. And when you think about the fact that the guys who would be a number one over him are probably going to want to go to the same places that he'll want to go to, all it's going to take is somebody having the right timing. And you telling me that the Knicks won't be ready? You telling me the Knicks aren't plotting that, especially if Carmelo leaves? They just better be careful. We saw Curry do it. Like, I know – I know he wanted the ball in his hands last year. I know that. I know he didn't like having to go off the ball, like especially in the biggest moments of the game, and he spins them in the corner while Jared Jack makes the play. I know he didn't like that, but you never heard that from him because like he said if they're winning, he'll he'll gladly be number two. So I think he would definitely do it. I think he would prefer to go be the number two guy, especially three years if it continues like this. 
he would rather be on a team with a guy that's better than him or a guy that's at least as good than he would being the best guy and having to carry the weight with not even not like a real double team drawing second second guy. I think he preferred being a number just because he's freer to play his game. And and lately he hasn't been able to play his game. He's been like he ends up looking bad because he's trying to take on two and sometimes he forces it and he still makes crazy passes and he has an eight turnover game. He doesn't like that. And he doesn't like that nobody sees that <laughs> it's not just him, it's that, you know, he's by himself out here really, you know. I, I don't think I don't think anybody sees that. You say, geez, Steph had eight turnovers. And he's like, well, what do you expect? I'm by myself. I mean, he doesn't say that, but that's me projected. But, you know, part, I think part of him is like, hey, I'm just trying to be aggressive. I'm trying to make something happen with two guys draped on me because I don't have a teammate that can draw a double team. You know, so I think you would welcome not having to deal with that burden of, you know, turning the ball over eight times because nobody's afraid that David Lee's going to beat them. And that's why the other, to me, the biggest flaw with this Warriors team is that they don't have a second guy who can create for other people. And so they don't have a guy, you know, we talked about how Steph likes the ball in the hand in the crunch time, but it would be wonderful to have another guy who could at least initiate things. And I think that's what they were hoping for with Iguodala, but, you yeah, know, it, he's, he's not all the way there. And so that, and that's the part of it that, that the Warriors need to really think about is, can we get somebody who maybe they're not starting, but Curry gets to play 10 to 15 minutes a game, and maybe they have a 50-50 arrangement or 75-25 or something, just to to make it so that he doesn't have all he doesn't have the entire offense on his shoulders every second he's on the floor, because that's a lot for anybody to handle. I w- I wrote a thing that there's a really unusual thing with him that we actually saw the Clippers take away from Chris Paul, which is that he's the one of the only guys in the league on a great on a very good team who is the primary scorer and the primary creator for other people. LeBron does it sometimes. Chris Paul does it sometimes. And that's really about it. And that's hard. It wears on guys. And especially when you're a point guard and you can get run into screens and everything on the other end, that's a lot to ask of Chris, a lot to ask of Steph Curry. I think he would even welcome, like, I don't think he, I think he loved Jack. I think he wanted the ball in his hands. I know he wanted the ball in his hands, but I think, now he would love to have Jack after going through this year. I'm not saying he didn't love Jack. I think he loved Jack, you know. And Jack was really good about making sure Curry, you know, felt like, you know, they were on the team. I think he made sure, hey, I know the coach is putting the ball in my hands, but this is still your team. I think Jack, being the leader, made sure Curry understood that, you know, it's not a, you know, there's no bad thing here, even though I know you want the ball. But I think he would welcome that now. I think if they had a Jack on their team, they beat the Clippers, and they're probably giving Oklahoma City all they want right now. Just because even if you don't have somebody who can create for someone else, you need someone who can consistently create offense. And that's not a jumper. Like, if they had a guy who just, like like a Rodney Stuckey, a Jeremy Lin, who, if nothing else, Curry can rest while this person gets to the back and gets to the free throw line or gets layups. I mean, they don't even have that. Their best thing was Jordan Crawford coming in, and you just didn't know what he was going to do. You know, and the, if they just had that, a guy you could say, all right, Curry, stand over here. I'm going to consistently make something happen, even if it's just for myself, off the dribble. Get to the basket, get 
you know, something reliable, not a jumper, not a fadeaway. I'm going to get to the rim. I'm going to draw some fouls. I'm going to live at the line. I'm going to put pressure on the defense. So when I'm in the game, they know I'm going to the rim. That would even help, even if they don't create for someone else. But they didn't. They not. They not only had were absent a second creator. They 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 even have somebody who could just get to the rim at will. I mean, just imagine that a team without somebody who lives going to the basket. You look at all the top teams. They got that. They got at least they got at least one player who makes their living getting to the rim, and the Warriors just don't have that. Yeah, that that's a really really good point, and the, just the the amount of things that they don't have, and that also to me puts a lot of pressure on Clay Thompson. That if he could turn into any one of those things that we were talking about that the Warriors don't have, that would be such a huge benefit for Steph and for the team moving forward. Especially for their flexibility, right? If they can if they can pay him and get the shooting and get the other thing, that would be the best of both worlds. But I don't know. Do you think you can learn that? <laughs> I, I don't think like you, I don't think you can learn it. I, I mean, I think that you can hone it a little bit. I think that the most likely way to do it is that you have somebody who can do that one thing and is bad at a lot of other things. Like I would say, Jamal Crawford in some ways would be his young days, or even when he was on the Warriors. You know, he was a few positives and a lot of negatives. And what he's done over the years is he's smoothed over some of the negatives. I feel like that's a more likely path to getting the right guy than having a guy who's good at other things and trying to make them dominant in these other things. Cause that's just hard. You know, some guys have it, some guys don't, that's not really a criticism. It's just the way that it works. I don't know if Clay, I think Clay can get better. I just, in the end, he's a shooter and you know, you're changing his DNA to make him a driver. Yeah. I think he can get better at reading when to drive or not, but his default is always going to be, to shoot, and I'm not even sure you want to change that. You know, I think you need a guy who's getting to the rim is his DNA. You know, for me, that's. I think they need that. You know, I know he's going to make 15 million, but if it, for me, if they got Jeremy Lin, I think that'll solve a lot of problems. You bring him off your bench. I think well, that and if you want to get if you want to get into the really crazy stuff, it's the fact that they could still have had Jeremy Lin. You know, they could have they could have done that. Have they could have had him, and then they would have. If you could think about a backcourt three-man of Lynn, Curry, and Clay Thompson, that if that if that had been, you know, so one of them is sitting at all times, that would have solved a lot of the Warriors' problems, and they let him go so they could have a little bit more space to offer DeAndre Jordan money. Why do you have to bring up old stuff? Because that's what I do. <laughs> I'll, I'll let I'll let you go on uh, just if, if there are any players that you can think of that you go oh man it would be really good for that guy to be on the Warriors like one that I'll bring up is a guy who has Barry connections which is Ryan Anderson of a guy just who who could maybe they're not perfect but that would be a, a nice fit for what they already have. Uh, seven love. <laughs> set, set your sights uh, really low there, aren't you? I mean, I'm 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 desperate and I'm reaching. <laughs> <laughs> if they can get Kevin Love, that'd be great. I, I, I mean, if we're gonna go, if we're talking, you know, uh, I, I want a guy that gets to the rim. I mean, even I, I feel a stretch for, and you know, I feel like, I mean, it's clear that that would help. For me, I like uh, a place to go for a high percentage shot, and when you don't have any reliable posts who can, you know, you can draw and kick. I think they need a guy who can get to the rim. And I think guys like Lynn, Stucky, any one of those guys, I don't care, it could be Will Bynum. I just want a guy, where you could, like how they did Crawford, 
hey, uh, get in the game for the last two minutes, and I just want you to just go play record part ball and take your shots. But at some point in the game, I want you to get straight to the rim. That's all I want you to do. It would be nice if he could also pass <laughs> so you can, you know, draw and kick. But I'm, I'm looking for a guy like that where you can get to the rim. If you get to a, a, a stretch four and a guy who can get to the rim, I think the only better offense you can have is to go get another star, uh, which which at some point they just have to do. And I think Kevin Love is it. Wait, are you? Are, I just want to make sure you're implying that Jordan Crawford doesn't pass. That's a shock to me. I think he's got to like be right, <laughs> right about to touch the ground for a travel after he jumped in the air and didn't have a shot, and he looked three or four times, and and he's got to get it off, otherwise it'll be up and down. Then he'll pass. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, it, it, otherwise he's it. Yeah, and and it's going to be interesting to see. The other thing that's been weird to me with this Warriors team is that they've never had a real, if you want to call it a pogo stick, at the four, just a really athletic guy who can just run down the floor and that Steph can just lob to because it's it's that would be something to make him happy too to just get easy points in transition. I thought Iguodala would be more of that too. I mean, he's he's good in transition. I just don't think they ran transition enough. For me, they, you know, I didn't like when he, Clay and Barnes brought the ball up. Iguodala can do it, but sometimes he walks. But Clay and Barnes, their handle isn't strong enough, so they have to slow it up. They don't. They don't have the, the confidence in their dribble to just go. And every time they get it, they walk it up, and it kills anything. It, it drives me nuts when they do that. I would. I mean, Clay or Iguodala and Curry. Anybody, Draymond Green is great at bringing that up because he pushes it and he can see the floor. I don't think Clay and Barnes have that ability. They're they're looking for a shot per se, and so they naturally just walk it up. I thought Iguodala would be better at that. I thought that's something he would do because he can do it, and he didn't get he didn't get to it enough. I don't think this year, which is one of the reasons why his averages are so low. He's supposed to be the guy where Curry can go and Iguodala can just bring it, but they ended up walking it up so much. I thought Thad Young would be great for this team for that reason. Just just a guy who could finish at the rim with some authority. But, you know, his price was always too high. Maybe is he a free agent or has he got a couple of years left? If you can get him Th- for cheap. Thaddeus Young? Yeah. He he has a couple of years left, but the Sixers are always willing to move guys for picks, so you never you never know what's going to happen. Don't have there. Picks anyway. That's true. The other thing that I was thinking about, I I, I don't think that Daryl Morey loves him, but the idea of somehow getting Jeremy Lin, because this offseason is also a big test for ownership because they've never gone into the luxury tax. And what would be remarkable about getting a guy like Lin is that he would show that they're willing to spend money to make that last step. Because, you know, they didn't go into the tax last year with, even though they had that big trade exception, they could have added one more guy. But to say, okay, you know, Jeremy Lin, he's his cap figure is like eight million, but he's actually being paid fifteen. To me, that would be a really nice statement for fans to say, okay, we're willing to put in all the all it's going to take to make this team great, so you guys can feel confident to do the same. Don't you think they have to do that now? I mean, you don't you fire your coach because he wasn't good enough. I mean, if 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 you're that all in, for me, they just have to. You can't not go over the tax this year. I don't think. There's no way you can put a, a team out there that's not clearly top four, top three, and you aren't over the tax. You know, if, if the expectation is going to be that high, for me, they just they got to spin. And what are they going to do with the bench? I mean, how do you how do you rebuild this bench without going over? 
they got room for one guy on the mid level without going over. I think if you if you get rid of all those expiring contracts, they got room for one guy. That's not a bench upgrade. Like, what are you gonna do? You got, they need a monster off the bench. That, that's very clear. That these little super limited one trick pony role role players off the bench as a unit doesn't work. You know, they need a they need a six man. And I don't know if Barnes can be that without a six-man, you know, with him. So I don't see how they go into next year without paying the tax because that means, for me, that they didn't really upgrade this roster, which means that's kind of hypocritical after you fire a coach for winning 51 games saying that wasn't enough and now you aren't doing everything you can. Like, I don't see the scenario where they're under the tax. Yeah, like that's a good, good point. One. That's a good point. And the other thing I think that's raised their own expectations and the expectation to fans is the idea that, okay, we're so committed to the other people in our management circle that we're not going to give a talented coach like Stan Van Gundy that kind of control is saying, okay, we have a group here that's so good that we can do that. So I think they have the pressure to be like, okay, we need to hit a home run this offseason because if we don't, then – if that was the reason Stan Van wouldn't come, then we need to show that we're that we can do that and that we can we can put the team we can build a good enough team and then so not only do they have to produce but they also have to have the team at the beginning to say this is worth it. This is why we let Van Gundy walk and this is why we told him never mind we got this see what we were able to do and I just don't see a scenario where they come back under the tax being able to pop their collar and say, yeah, see, this is, we told you we got this. <laughs> I just don't mean, who is it going to be? It's going to be Jordan Crawford or another version of that in space. I don't know how they can do it. They need a monster somewhere at some point, you know, a proven for sure this guy's going to upgrade our team, whether it's Jeremy Lin or, you know, off the bench or a guy like a Ryan Anderson or something, and those pieces cost. And unless you get rid of David Lee somehow, I don't know how you – I just don't. They better break bread, that's for sure. That, that's for sure. And thank you so much for taking time. It's a pleasure having you on. I'm sad, I apologize for taking this long. Oh, we're good. I'm just honored to be invited, you know, because it's been years and I haven't been invited. So, for me, being invited means that I have arrived in this profession. So, I thank you. You most certainly have. Thanks again for coming on. All right. Thanks for that. Thanks again to Marcus Thompson for taking the time. It was really good to have him on. He is one of the best writers, not just about the Warriors, but honestly one of the best sports writers that I know. His piece on race and its involvement in the whole Mark Jackson situation was one of the most thoughtful and thought-provoking pieces that I read in all of basketball over the last month and trust me there's been a lot of great stuff you can follow him on twitter at thompson scribe that's t-h-o-m-p-s-o-n-s-c-r-i-b-e and he writes for the bay area news group he's actually going into broader sports now which i'm happy for him and the other thing that i wanted to get into just while it's pretty topical since this podcast will be coming out the day after it happened is my own thoughts on the steve kerr situation and my general thought, and this was true, I was very critical of the Mark Jackson hire when it happened, is that I don't like bringing somebody in as a first-time NBA coach who has no experience at any level. It's a big risk. You There are a lot of things that you don't know, and 
some of that worked out great with Mark Jackson. Some of it, I think, showed itself with strategies and his trusting of his instincts and things like that. There are things that you learn and that you adapt to over the process of being on a bench, whether that's as an assistant or as a head coach at another level. And that's a risk. But I do think that Steve Kerr is the least risky of any person that has gone straight from something else to the bench in a long time. Part of that is the coaching pedigree that he has, the fact that he played for Popovich and Phil Jackson, the two best coaches of his generation of players, is definitely something. And it certainly appears that he has maintained a positive enough relationship with both of them that they can be more direct mentors in that way, even though obviously he's competing against them in one form or the other, one in the same conference and the other just in the same league. But that is a huge benefit. He also certainly seems like somebody who is a student of the game and who wants to get better and who really is willing to do whatever is necessary to make the team better, which is a really important thing. And Marcus and I talked about the risk of making ownership mad, and I think that the rapport with Kerr and Lakehead, that they have a pre-existing relationship, is definitely a, a positive there because I feel like he can speak from a different position than Jackson was able to and that's not really fair to Jackson because that just wasn't the circumstance that he had but at a certain point you have to be pragmatic and say well whether or not it's fair that is the situation so it's definitely a risk I I would have much preferred Stan Van Gundy and while I think Bob Myers has done a very very good job with the Warriors I would have given him that authority considering the fact that the Warriors are really close to a set piece. I think that it would have helped a lot and it would have taken a lot of the risk out of this. That said, I really do get some fascination from the idea that Steve Kerr, when he was the general manager of the Suns, tried really, really hard to get Stephen Curry when he was drafted to the point, and I alluded to this a couple times when I had Amin Hassan of ESPN, who worked for the Suns at the time, that they thought they had Stephen Curry, and that gives a credibility, if you want to say it to that, and that Kerr, in his role as an analyst, has definitely given some thought to how he would use Steph, and really that's what it's about. I think that when you're the headliner, when you're the franchise guy, when your name is on the top of the marquee, that's who you build through in basketball. It's a little bit different than the other sports, and so I'm very excited to see what Kerr will do with that and to see how these players play with him. I'm somebody who thinks that the clubhouse chemistry concept with this Warriors team was a little bit overstated with Jackson because it's a group of really good guys, but we will have to see. You know, There are a lot of things that are going to be a part of that, and there's uncertainty and everything like that. And also the other big factor in everything is health. Let's see how this team goes because while they had their bouts this year, it could have been a lot worse. It really could have been, and so what the expectations are and how well they perform to that and you know what happens in the west there are a series of great teams in the west and rising teams in the west that will make it hard and I think the Warriors need to be really hoping that the NBA is willing to change the structure to a top 16 because that will give them more flexibility but it is definitely an interesting hire as somebody who covers the Warriors I am very excited about the possibility of seeing some less conventional things and maybe seeing some of the analytics that get talked about so much now really in play with the Warriors. I think they're a great team to see things like that. But at the same point, as Marks and I talked about, it all comes down to who you have. And 
this should provide a little bit more juice, we can call it, to get David Lee somewhere else, or even to just have his role change on this team. And while I think David Lee is a good player, I think that both he and the team can be better served by changing that and making it something that makes sense for both of them. So it's going to be really interesting. I, I think that it could take a little bit of an adjustment time. And it's also possible, as I was concerned about with Mark Jackson, that Kerr can develop under the Warriors and can use that as experience and then go somewhere else. A five-year deal is obviously a long deal, but we've seen that durations of contracts can shift around a lot, and if the right opportunity came in, you never know what could happen. But it's going to be very fun, I th I, and I think that at a certain point, you have to gamble, and I think that when you look at who else was on the market after Stan Van Gundy was gone, and I've already said my th my piece on that, other than maybe a Kevin Ollie or a Fred Hoiberg, Kerr was a pretty solid risk to take, and it's going to be a challenge, and it's going to be a struggle and do that, but he has a very high upside in terms of that, and I think he has a lower, he has a higher floor, a lower risk than a lot of other first-time coaches, but that's still a heavy risk, as I said. You know that, that hasn't changed. There's no sugarcoating that. There's no way of moving around that. You can't dance around that just because he's liked or because he's popular or because he's on TV. I don't care about any of that. But he does have a very good pedigree. He does have enthusiasm, and he does have an excellent team to do some interesting things. So we'll have to see how it works out. Thank you again for listening. Next week's show is going to be really strong. I already have a couple guests lined up. And for those of you who are interested in the Eliminated series, it will be back with a vengeance in the very near future. Hopefully as soon as next week. Might be another week, just depending on when I can get the guests. I have a couple of different teams that I'm working out the people and working out the times. So we'll go through that. And I'm very excited. And as I always say, if you have any comments, criticism, or insight, I really do appreciate it. You can email daniel.larue at realgm.com, or you can message me on Twitter. I think that's the best way, because and you, I promise you will get a direct response. My Twitter handle is Danny Larue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can send me anything, positive, negative. As long as it has some substance, I will get back to you. And... Thank you for listening. It's it's a really fun thing. I actually realized a couple days ago that it's been about six months that I've been doing this, and it has been a very fulfilling experience, and my deepest thanks go out to Real GM and Chris Reyna and everybody else there to give me this opportunity. It's been fun intellectually for me, and it's been great to connect with so many fascinating people and have some really challenging, interesting discussions, and I'm excited for the off-season because I feel like that will only continue, and... I appreciate all of you listening. It's been a fun run, and it's only going to get better from here. So thanks, take care, and make it a great day.
When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your mood. 